Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley, a podcast about making things up and making things happen. We talk to creative people about how they do what they do, and this week my guest is Doug Ross. He is the founder of Evolution Media. It's a production company behind some of your favorite reality shows like The Real Housewives of Orange County, The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, and Botched, which is where I met him working on the show Botched Post-Op. Um, he's really fun to talk to. He's got a lot of interesting behind-the-scenes stories about being a reality producer. But before we get into that, I would like to encourage you to check out DennisAnyone.net. All the podcasts are archived there. You can see pictures that go with some of them. You can donate to my virtual tip jar, and it helps me keep the podcast free, pay for things like web hosting space and all that. And I want to give a shout-out to Patrick Patterson for the generous donation. It means a lot. Um, also, there's links to... Um, my books that I wrote that you can buy and other, uh, I have a DVD of my short films. Somebody was asking about that. Um, there's links there so you can purchase my goods. Some folks didn't know I had books. I have two books, Misadventures in the, in the 213 and Screening Party, and they're both available online and probably for a penny on Amazon. I know, they get you on the shipping. Um, I also want to encourage you, if you're listening for the first time, I hope you subscribe. I hope you like it. Um... And without any further ado, here is Doug Ross. All right, I'm here in the Burbank office of Doug Ross. You're the founder of Evolution Media. You produce all kinds of reality shows, Real Housewives of Orange County and Beverly Hills. I know you because I worked on Botched Post-Op, the, the talk show, the little half hour that came after Botched by Nature and had a great experience there. So you're a reality king. You've been in the business how long? I've been in the business, well, I've, I started Evolution 29 years ago, but I've actually been in the business for about 35 years. Wow. And you, your background is documentary, yes. right? I, when I got out of college, I landed in a series of jobs that were for a variety of different documentary film companies. Right. And so by the time I was ready to branch out on my own, uh, I thought I was going to be doing big scripted shows of course I didn't know shit and I didn't know anybody but the few people I did know were in the documentary world and right. so as we started to get little jobs they were documentary in nature and they were often documentary style jobs supporting other producers unscripted documentary style non-fiction television shows and I didn't realize that I was on the leading edge of what would become reality TV, what which, was, which still today is based in documentary filmmaking technique. Yeah. What was the first show that you did that you feel like is kind of what we think of as reality today? Well, for me, Doug Ross and Evolution, the first show was Bug Juice. Right. Which was a documentary soap opera about real teenagers at summer camp. And we did it for Disney Channel... And we started in 96, and it ran through 2001 or 2002. And it was the first teen reality show. It came on about a year after the real world had been introduced. Right. And so the kids in that show had very little clue about what quote-unquote reality TV right. was. So... They were unfamiliar with what it was all about. They were not producing themselves like so many people who appear in reality shows do today. Right. And the show was very much known for its raw authenticity. 
Yeah, but teenagers. Like, what was it like first time out of the gate working with teenagers? Were they? Did you have to get parent, parental approval and all of that? Absolutely. I would assume we had to get all the parents of the kids who were involved in the show. But there were another three hundred and fifty kids at camp. We had to get every family to sign off on the fact that we were going to be in this sacred place, summer camp, for the entire summer. Wow. And I also think that it would be very difficult to make that show today because parents are much more leery about reality shows. In those days, nobody knew it was for Disney Channel, which still has a very respected right, brand. Right, it's a Disney thing. You're into it. And we had a couple of skirmishes with some families but for the most part people were happy to participate thinking it was a great experience and it really was a great experience especially for the kids who were featured in our show we followed one cabin of boys and one cabin of girls over the whole summer i still in touch with those kids today they're now grown up with families of their own and one guy is a college professor at usc another guy is a wall street Right. They Got did okay. It. They all did okay. And were they like, you know, having crushes or fooling around with each other? Like, how was it? So, were they at summer was it camp? Scandalous? It was a little scandalous. Right. And part of how I sold the show was I said to the guy who was the head of Disney Channel at the time, I said, at summer camp, everything is super important to you as a teenager. And so much happens. In one day at summer camp, it's the equivalent of what happens in a year for an adult. In the morning, you wake up and you have a crush on a girl. By lunchtime, you're going steady. Right. And by dinner, you've already broken up and there's all the trauma that's attached with that. And everything feels like it's the most important thing in the world. And so the setting is so ripe for drama here are a bunch of teenagers they're all going through puberty and hormones are raging hormones are raging and they're away from home for the first time it writes itself right that's awesome that's so fun now let's talk about botch the show that i uh was sort of involved with in the in the post-op thing um that seems really complicated from a reality point of view from a producing point of view because you've got to schedule the surgeries and all of that stuff had you done anything like that before we hadn't done a full-on plastic surgery show before, but a few years ago we did a long-running series for TLC called 10 Years Younger. And in 10 Years Younger, uh, the mission for each standalone episode was to take the participant who looked pretty crappy for a lot of different reasons. And by the end of the episode, with a series of different kinds of makeovers they would look at least 10 years younger than we first meet them at the beginning of the episode and we did a lot of sort of low grade plastic surgery type things a lot of laser stuff we did the teeth work we did chin and fillers and botox and that kind of stuff so we had a little sense of the heel time that's yeah involved. how that works but the surgeries that we attempt, not we, the surgeries that the doctors are tasked with doing on botched are so difficult and so extreme. And the result takes many, many weeks 
often many, many months for it to become apparent. By the time the swelling goes down, sometimes there are multiple surgeries. And so indeed, it made for a very complex show to produce, to schedule, and to coordinate on a cable budget. Yeah. So we had to figure out how to be efficient about it, but also get everything in and tell compelling stories at the same time. It's one of the most fun challenges we've had. I like challenges. That's part of why we do TV is right. to try to do something that you almost think can't be done. Right. And I'm really proud of that show because it it has the freak factor, but the feel-good factor, too. We're actually helping people and making their lives better because of their participation in the show. And I can't say that about every show we do. Yeah, well, I just from my point of view, um, interviewing the guests that we had on and pre-interviewing and stuff, like, they were really grateful. And it really felt good to just be a, be a part of that and meet the people and see the improvement. These are people that never would have gotten their the, the, those surgeries any other way. Well, the Botch by Nature spinoff. Yeah, which is the one that the show that I worked on came on after. Exactly. That one I'm even a little more proud of than Botched because the participants on Botched are there because, for the most part, they've made some dumbass decisions and have got themselves in messes because they went to plastic surgeons who weren't plastic surgeons or were not qualified or they tried to save a few hundred dollars and they would go to some foreign country where they had no sanitized rooms to work in blah 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 and so they're on the show because they were kind of dumb and were helping them fix their stupid mistakes right for the most part sometimes they were good well-meaning people and there was a complication or they unwittingly found a unscrupulous doctor who didn't really know what they were doing. Right. But for the most part, it's their own fault. On Botched by Nature, those people were born with a congenital defect, a deformity, or had a, a tragic accident like the woman who was struck by lightning. Yes. And... So for me as a viewer watching Botched by Nature, I care so much more about wanting to see those people get the help and the life-changing surgery that they really deserve and would never probably have an opportunity to have. And then to see some of the transformations and you think, oh my God, this person's life is forever made hugely better. Mm -hmm. Is that a way to say that? Bigly, as Donald Trump would say. Yeah. Then had we not had them on the show. Yeah. Are you surprised that it's so popular? Not really. I, when we were putting together the first episode of Botched, there was something that was so oddly compelling about it and... We worked hard to come up with a format and the way the story unfolds over the course of the hour that you can't help, but you just have to watch it all the way through. Right. You've you got to see that reveal. You do not click away from that show. Yeah. It's strangely entertaining. Yeah. No. And I totally get it. So I uh, am not surprised. when we The way we sold the show was very interesting. The... Uh, 
we had been working with Paul Nassif, one of the doctors. He was the, married to one of our real housewives of Beverly Hills, Adrian Malouf. They got a divorce while they were filming the show. And we stayed in contact with Paul. We really liked Paul and he wanted to do something else in television. And my business partner, Alex Baskin and I were having dinner with him one night and we were talking about different things we might want to do together on television. And Paul had some pretty standard ideas that we thought, not only are they not really that interesting, we'll never sell those ideas. Right. And then later on in the conversation, he mentioned that one of his specialties was doing revision plastic surgery. I had never heard of that before. And both Alex and I thought, wait a minute, that's unusual. That's new. That's a twist on plastic surgery that we've never seen on television. And then the titillating factor, the thing that made it very much appropriate for E, the network, was that it was revision plastic surgery about bad plastic surgery. Right. Then we found out that Paul was actually friends with and had worked in the same office with Terry Dubrow, who was the husband of another one of our housewives on the other franchise, the Royal Housewives of Orange County. And we thought, this is too good to be true. They actually know each other. They, they like and respect each other. Terry also was a specialist in revision plastic surgery. But they do different. They focus on different body parts. Yes. Which is great. So Paul is a facial plastic surgeon. And Terry does facial work. But he also does the full body. Right. So we thought, we can't pilot this show. We can't test this show. It's how do you do that? Right. But we wanted to demonstrate their chemistry and the good, fun nature of the idea itself. Right. So we got them together with a home video camera and we showed them a bunch of pictures of famous celebrities with really bad plastic surgery and let them riff what they thought was wrong with it. They made jokes about it. They made jokes about each other and what they would do to fix it. And in that little chemistry test, it was so electric. It was so much fun to watch, even on a thousand dollar home video camera Right. that we sold it off that tape, which is very unusual. It went straight to series. We didn't do a presentation after that. We didn't do a pilot. It went straight to series. Uh, what celebrities were in that uh, little reel? Oh, my God. You don't have to say it. I don't even remember. There I had just, to be a Jackson, probably. Uh, well, yes, there was a Michael Jackson and uh, was it LaToya? And yeah, I think it was Michael and LaToya. There was that famous, really bad plastic surgery lady, Jocelyn. Jocelyn Wildenstein, of course. Yes, and so her, several others, uh, and then also just some wealthy people who had had that plastic right. surgery that was clear by looking at their deformed nose, their weird eyes. Several women have had their eyes done and they cannot close their eyes. Right. Can you imagine? I can't. <laughs> um, with a show like that, do you ever think, what if the, 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 the ultimate bad thing happens? What if somebody dies? God forbid. Do you, does it ever cross your mind? But, of course. Yeah. We... The number one thing for us and the doctors and the network, of course, is safety. Yeah. And we have had to not do 
a lot of the patients that we think would be most interesting because the risk is too high. Right. And there, of course, is risk in doing even minor surgery. Of course. But we have gone out of our way and the doctors go out of their way to make sure that we take every precaution that we have to and we don't push it too far. Even if it would make better television, it's not worth it. Right. Uh, hopefully that will never happen and thank God it hasn't happened. Right. But it is something that we think of. Of that, course. And uh, it's any show that we do, there's risk of something bad happening physically on the Real Housewives of Orange County this season. Uh, our cast went uh, dune buggy riding out in the desert in these souped up, very aggressive dune buggies. I don't think they're called dune buggies, but in my head, that's what they are. Right. And they got into a horrible accident that, thank God, nobody died. But two of our cast members were very seriously injured. One had to be airlifted to a hospital. Another was put on a backboard and taken in an ambulance to hospital. And it scared the shit out of us. Of course. Were they all in the same dune buggy? They were all in the same dune buggy. Uh, it was a big thing with three seats in the back and three in the front. And... Uh, this was an activity that one of our cast members does regularly, and it was her husband's birthday. And they, they do this every year on his birthday, and she's a skilled driver. And she, they were going up a hill, and they took the turn a little wrong, and it was totally an accident. And so goddamn scary, and thank God that they all have lived to tell about it. And, of course, it changed the course of the story for the rest of the season. Was it sensitive to decide how to talk about it, how to show it, what to show? Uh, my belief is that I want to always show the audience the real story. And the network wondered how much they felt comfortable showing. But to their credit, they, in the end, let us tell the complete story and show the accident in all its scary glory from all the different angles that we were just shooting. We didn't know it was going to happen, but we were following them with cameras inside the dune buggy and several different cameras. But then we showed the aftermath and how we went into it. We had to work with the, um, the National Park Service and the, the Rangers and the EMTs and get their approval to appear. I mean, we shot them coming in, rushing in to help, not knowing if we would eventually be able to air it, but we wanted to shoot it. And uh, so, anyway, I bring that story up to yeah. indicate that even on a show like The Real Housewives of Orange County, you would never expect there to be something that was potentially deadly. So there's a risk in everything we do, and we try to be responsible producers in every case for every type of show. And you do the best you can, and they, and of course, the cast signs waivers. <laughs> they know that. And we don't make anybody do anything. Like those ladies, that was their choice to do it. We didn't make them do it. They wanted right. to do it. They, we just followed along. So you, you, you started producing The Real Housewives of Orange County after the first season. Yes. And sort of revamped it and kind of, kind of figured out what the formula really was for that franchise. Is that fair to say? That... I think it's fair to say the network had bought a show called Behind the Gates, 
and it was a, a, a tape that a gentleman, Scott Dunlop, who we still work with today, that's one of the executive producers, he had put his neighbors in this very exclusive gated community down in Orange County on tape. And Scott has a great eye for casting. He picked the right ladies. And I've seen that little teaser tape that he put together, and it was compelling. The network thought that the title Behind the Gates sounded like a concentration camp. Right. So they changed it. And I'm not even sure really back then. I think there's a little bit of revisionist history as to whether or not they thought this was an idea that eventually could be franchised. But they did add of Orange County to the Real Housewives. This uh, was being developed right as... ABC's Desperate Housewives had come on the air and was a giant hit in right. the scripted world. And the folks at Bravo rightly understood that the, the timing was right and the content just lent itself to doing the reality show version, kind of, of right. that show. But they did add Of Orange County to the title. In that first season, the network asked Scott Dunlop and some other producing partners that he had to produce the show. They hadn't produced a lot of TV before. I don't think Scott had ever produced any TV. I think he had some partners who had done a little bit. And they quickly found that they were in over their heads. And there were legal issues that had bubbled up in the show that were very problematic. And... The show was over budget, and it wasn't going very well. The network exercised a seldom used clause in the contract where they are allowed to take over the show, and they did. At that time, we were doing a couple of other projects for Bravo, and they were going well, and they liked our machine. They liked our storytelling chops. And they brought in some of the people who were working on our team to go over and finish out that first season of Orange County. And the ratings weren't great, but they did notice that each week they ticked up just a little bit. And they thought they were into something. And one thing I, many things that we'll give Bravo credit for, but one thing in particular is if they believe in something, they will give it a chance to find its audience, even if... It takes a little while, and not all networks do that. A right. lot of networks, as you know, if it doesn't score in the first couple of weeks, it's gone. Right. Before people even had a chance to discover it in the first place. They came to us and they said, not these words, but this is what they meant. We, th we believe in the potential of the show and maybe in the hands of some better producers and storytellers who could really turn into something. And... If you're interested in taking it on, we'll have you. But mind you, you have to assume all the legal issues that are still hanging over the show. I'm not even sure I would have taken that assignment nowadays, knowing what I know. But we right. were a much younger company, and we were very hungry and aggressive, and we took it on. And it took a long time to get through the thorny legal issues because the the docu soap was still in its nascent stages. People didn't know how to construct the contracts uh, to encompass all the rights you need to. And anyway, so we had to clean all of that up. 
But one thing I have always been proud about at Evolution is we really pride ourselves in our storytelling focus, our storytelling abilities, and the care and love we put into the storytelling. My philosophy is you have to love the people in the shows even if you kind of hate them. Right. Because if you don't really love them and embrace them and embrace their flaws, they're not going to trust you. They're not going to give it up to you. But you're not really going to do a good job telling their stories. And we worked very closely with the network, but with our team to figure out how to pace the show, how the graphics would work in the show, and how the stories would become more interwoven and how there would be a focus on more group interaction because the first season of the show was almost exclusively individual stories intercut and cut to 11 years later the show is all about the group interaction peppered with little flavor of the individual individual stories how can you if, if you're capturing reality and you have good storytelling instincts how do how does that manifest itself in in the in the way you uh, the things you choose to include in the editing. In other words, you don't want to. You're not scripting it, obviously. So how do your how do you express your storytelling instincts in that's that a, format? That's a really good question. I thought a lot about how how to describe to somebody how we have been able to successfully figure out how to do the to make a Real Housewives where you're shooting for four, five, six months five, six, seven days a week sometimes, three crews following six or seven women and their husbands and their children and their friends. And there's literally thousands of hours of tape. At the beginning, we weren't quite sure what stories to follow. And we tried to follow everything. And that doesn't work because it's unmanageable. And you have so much material that the story department who has to watch it and catalog it and figure out what the story is could never get through it. We quickly learned that there had to be a lot of pre-producing before we started shooting where we worked very closely with the women to find out what is going on in their lives. What are the major story things that are happening to them in all aspects of their lives? And we also ask them to try to move any of the real things they're doing in their lives in the future into our production window so we have a lot to work with. So the shows are produced, but they are not scripted. We never tell them how to feel, what to do, what to say, but we do encourage them to get together. But it is the day-to-day, sometimes four, five, six, seven times a day interaction with the cast behind the scenes, off camera with our talent producers. What's going on? How are you feeling? What are you doing next? What are you doing tomorrow? And then as a team, we take all that information and we figure out, well, we're not sure if the story is about these two becoming friends again or these two in a fight again, but we think it's going in this direction. So we'll choose our, we'll take our very precious and limited time with the crews And we're going to follow these two women doing this today, hoping that we've made the right choice about what the story is going to be. And we make a lot of right choices. We make even more wrong choices. And thank God for editing, because 
we have to sift them through the thousands of hours of tape and try to separate what's actually happening from all the background noise of everything else that's happening in, in the moment that we're videotaping and then figure out how to piece those moments together in just the right order so that they make sense as a story, but that they also are paced and formatted like a television show. I often think it's like creating a giant term paper from the old days when you would have all the uh, index cards with mm-hmm. all the little things right. and you would move them around and move them around until you figured out, oh, here's the through line that makes sense. And that's, we still do that today. We literally put every story beat, every moment that we put on an index card and we, on a gigantic cork board and we move them around until we have figured out, okay, here's the actual story that we've been covering. Now that we take away all the extraneous stuff, it becomes clear and that's how we do it. That's how we put it together. Wow. Now, is there, are there rules that you have in terms of editing of individual moments where you wouldn't take a line that they set over there and put it next to that, even if it makes it juicier? We definitely have those rules and it's really important to be authentic and honest in the storytelling, even though the audience thinks that we're not, and I can't speak for other franchises and other Real Housewives, I can only speak for the ones we do. Our feeling is is that if we made a juicier show by faking uh, lines that were said about one thing and putting them against another or what we call Frankenbiting, where yeah. you take a bunch of different interviews and cut them together to say something that it might be great for that episode or that season, but we've lost the cast because they know they didn't say or do that. Right. And we depend on the cast trusting us and coming back season after season. And because we are making the show only a few weeks ahead of it, Airing really is it that quick? It's that close. I mean, wow. so the show that's going to be on this Monday, we're still working on, and it's Friday. Wow, that's how close wow. it is. So you try to be fair. That's like a just like we a, try to be fair. Every once in a while, we'll make a mistake, uh, and sometimes we don't even know as the producers we've made a mistake. Somebody in the story department unwittingly. Or maybe kind of wittingly, but didn't tell anybody, did combine two things, and that's not what... And when that happens, boy, do we hear about it. And if we figure it out before the show's air, we'll fix it. Right. Uh, But it's really important. And the cast don't see the cuts until they're on TV. The cast uh, get a courtesy copy a couple of days before so they can write their blogs. Right. Oh, yeah. They have blogs to write. They've got a whole thing now. I think it's so interesting that different production companies do different franchises. Are you totally separate? Do you ever uh, meet? Do you, are you competitive? or How does that work? We're completely separate. I'd say we're very competitive. And I had never met any of the other Real Housewife producers until about, I think it was about three years ago now. Maybe it was two years ago. There was a conference in Washington, D.C., a television conference called Real Screen. And... Sherry Levine, who is the head of programming at Bravo, was invited to uh, conduct a panel about the housewives. And so she asked the 
executive producers from all the different companies to sit on the panel and she would moderate and we'd take questions from the audience and whatnot. And the night before, Sherry hosted a dinner where we all got together and it was the first time we had all met each other. Wow. And it was so much fun because, of course, all we did was swap stories about the very challenging, I was going to say the nightmares of making the show, but I'll be nice. Right. The very challenging experience it is to make the housewives in particular, that's a, a very specific type of cast member who want to be on those shows, who we want to be on the shows, and what makes them interesting on TV makes them very difficult to deal with. Yeah, they're high maintenance. That's the whole thing. That's putting it nicely. Um, Why do people love the Housewives? I think people love the Housewives because there's a lot that's very relatable. You see a lot of yourselves because these people are real people and we catch them at very real moments in their lives. I think they also love the fact that these women who in some cases are very, very wealthy or in other cases pretend that they're very, very wealthy. They love to see them have the same struggles and comeuppance that the rest of us dumb schlubs out there in the universe face. Yeah. I think that's part of the appeal. There's, when I was, I watched it, well, I watched some of them, I kind of come in and out, but I think it's that thing of like, oh, money can't buy happiness. That has been one of the most interesting lessons for me personally, having now produced 10 seasons of Orange County, seven seasons of Beverly Hills with a lot of very wealthy people who often are unfortunately not happy. Yeah. And money does not buy happiness. It makes life easier on the day-to-day level, but it doesn't make you happy. Now, do you have all the housewives in your phone? Could they all call you? They all. They all. They do. (laughs) They do. I cannot tell you how many times I'll be at dinner with friends and I'll feel the phone ringing in my pocket. You just know it's a housewife, right? Well, almost. It has that. And I'll pull it out and it'll be a housewife name and I'll show the table like I'm not taking this right now. Right. I'm just not there yet. There's no such thing as a short conversation with a housewife. Yeah. Each conversation with a housewife at least is an hour. Now the actual content of the conversation is about six minutes. You just repeat it about ten times in the hour. And but are they usually talking about things that have already been shot or things that are coming up or is it all over the map? It depends what part of the season we're in. Yeah. If we're in, if we're shooting, it's about what's happened during the shoot or what somebody said or they feel like they've been treated unfairly or they've done something and they're demanding that that not be included in the show. That happens a lot. I bet. Um, what do you do when they say, can you please not use that? And we say, you know the rules. Yeah. If you say it or do it, every, there's nothing off the table. It's all fair game. How has social media affected what you guys do in these shows? Because they all have Twitter accounts now. They're all, it's all part of it. I hate the social media Thank you. aspect of it. Hate it. It's made it so much more difficult to produce the show. When we first started doing Orange County, that did not exist. And the, the women would be interested in the reviews of the show or the general, the old-fashioned way of people giving feedback about something, but they were much 
less focused on their image and how they were coming across and every line they said and every interaction they had. And now with this instant feedback, we have found that increasingly the women are thinking about what the Twitter is going to say as they're in front of the camera. And they're producing themselves often more because they're so aware of the social media aspect of it. Then they also fight on social media behind the scenes, which is very frustrating for us because we want them to have those discussions. Save it for the camera. Those conflicts in front of the camera. Yeah. And a lot of times, so much will have happened on social media between the cast, then when they get together in front of the camera, they're in a very different place than they were 24 hours earlier, and there's sometimes it's hard to make the leap with the material right. that All this have. stuff has already happened on social media yeah. in between two shoots. Yeah. Oh, I feel your pain. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, do they? Do you feel like they? You know, when people started throwing tables and stuff like that, do you feel like that they that they sort of start producing themselves in a more outrageous way, or did you feel like people were pretty pretty authentic given the, I, the situation? Well, the table flip did not happen on one of our shows, but yeah. we've had some crazy stuff, wine throws and glass smashes and. And people getting shoved and pushed and whatnot. I think that the cameras heighten things for them a little bit. But this really is, for the most part, they forget that we're shooting 32 seconds into the shoot. Right. Thank God. Because they they kind of forget that we're there. I do think... That in a strange way, and I've noticed this, especially in the relationships between the husband, husbands and wives on the show, that the camera gives you this weird sense that you can say things and be more honest than you would if the cameras weren't there. It's kind of counterintuitive. You right. think it would make them shut down. But for some reason, and thank God it happens, Right. people, you turn on the cameras and they start spilling their guts. We do tell the cast at the beginning of the season, we only have one rule. The rule is you have to think out loud, which is not something you would do in polite company when you go to a right. dinner party or you're hanging out with a group of people. Many times you hold your tongue. But we tell them the cameras can't hear what's going on in your mind. We are making a TV show, even if it is, even if it is about your real life. So... The only thing that's different, it's like your life on hyper speed, is you have to think out loud. Now, they don't always do it, but it does start this uh, momentum of the show being almost more real than real because they're saying things and what they really want to say, but they might not say in polite company if the cameras weren't there. Right. So when do the interviews happen? Say there's a dinner party and then you cut to the person talking about what happened at the dinner party. Does it happen like that same day or are they brought back later for interviews or does it just vary? We conduct the interviews about every 10 to 14 days. So then they replay whatever, all the different things. So the, the producer who's asking the questions for the interviews will say, at the dinner party, you had words with Lisa and you got very upset and you stormed out of the room. What was going through your head at that moment? Right. So they will remind them what happened because it didn't just happen. Uh, 
but they're so they're conducted about every ten or fourteen days. When you're watching the cuts, who makes you laugh the most, or does it vary? I think that Shannon Bedore, who is on our Orange County show, is hilarious. I cannot take my eyes off of her when she's on screen. And I have told her this. She doesn't think she's funny, which is one of the reasons I right. think that she's funny. Vicki Gumbelson makes me laugh. Uh, she, too, doesn't think she's funny. Who breaks your heart? They all can break my heart. Uh, and I'm not saying that to be politically no, it's, correct. No, it's interesting. I, I genuinely love all of our cast members, even if they often don't love me. Uh, but I really do love them. I love them for being so brave to, to open up their lives. It's very scary and it's very risky and they do it. Sometimes they complain about it. But when we catch them sometimes in those super vulnerable moments where they're so invested in what's going on that they have completely forgotten about the cameras and they aren't thinking about the viewers because they are just in that moment and you see their humanity, it can break your heart for them because yeah. they're all deep down, they're all wonderful people, they're loving but they're full of flaws and they're so human and that's what makes I think that's why the viewers like it is because you you get to see those moments. Right. I agree. Um you were you produced the first season of Big Brother and the first season of Fear Factor. That's right. Um what's your favorite memory of the Big Brother? <clears throat> Shoot. I think that the year that we did Big Brother was the first season and we had been hired by the Dutch company that created the show and owned the format. And they brought us in because they thought we were good storytellers and also because we were a relatively new company at the time, they thought that they would be able to boss us around, which they did. And we were told to produce the show exactly the way they had done it in Holland. It didn't ever really completely jive with me because I recognized early on, I think we need to Americanize many parts of this right. format. We never got that opportunity, but it was at that time, the biggest show that we had ever done. I think the budget that season was like 22 or $23 million. That's still a huge budget. For the and whole season. For the whole season. And it was that season also, we were on every night. What we shot one day was on the air the next day. And I had never done live television up to that yeah. point. And we had a live show every week. I think the most exciting thing about producing that season was the live aspect of it. I, it, you felt like you were going to throw up the whole time the show was on, but then the minute it was over, the exhilaration was incredible. That season, the format was the original format where the viewers voted 
who would be eliminated each week. Right. Nowadays, of course, they the vote housemates. inside the house. Yeah. What was interesting and what was different about Americans versus Europeans in the voting is that the Americans voted out the the cantankerous, the thorny ones, the ones who were causing conflict. But those were the ones who were making the show interesting. Right. So very early on, the most interesting people were booted out of the house and the nice, kind of boring sure. ones were the ones that were left and the show felt a little soft all the way through. Right. And they changed that after they fired me. <laughs> Was it brutal getting fired? Yes, it was brutal to be fired from Big Brother, especially because I knew all along that changes need to be made. I had many discussions with the folks at CBS and at Endemol that we should be changing the show. The folks at Endemol didn't want to change it. CBS was more willing to, but in that first season, Endemol had creative control over the show. Yeah. CBS did not. And... When it was all said and done, I got I was taken out to lunch by the gentleman who ran the reality division. And he said to me, you know all those changes you've been dying to make? Well, we're going to make them next season, except not with you. We're Ugh. going to have to put in a new team. We need to show the advertisers and the O&Os, the owned and operated stations, that we're making a clean break. Right. And it really is not about you. But thanks for the ideas. Well... They were some of my ideas and some of my team's ideas. Right. But we never got that opportunity. It was a huge blow to me. And I look back now and I realize it was one of the best things to have happened to me because it kicked my ass so hard that it made me a much better businessman. And it also woke me up to what how TV really works and how to play the game more and whose ass you need to kiss and... And whose ass you shouldn't be kissing. And I, I learned a lot from it. And so you, you changed the way you did business from there on in? That, I mean, it, it didn't happen immediately. Right. The fear factor came right on the heels of that. Was it a similar story? or uh, Similar-ish. We uh, were still very much connected with the folks at Endemol. They right. had a put-pilot deal at NBC, which meant NBC had bought... Something they didn't know what it would be, right. and uh, Endemol still liked us as producers and knew that we had launched Big Brother in 18 weeks, which was half the time that it took them to launch it in Europe. So they knew that we were a capable group, and so they showed us a lot of formats that they had available from uh, Europe. And there was one that they had called Now or Neverland, which was a show that lasted only one season. It was a competition each week between the Dutch and the Belgian, their their neighbors and their rivals. And it didn't really work as a show. But in that show, there was a stunt, uh, sort of a big physical stunt. And that really appealed to us. And we thought, well, what if you made a whole show of stunts? And what if you had the stunts escalated in their difficulty, but the middle stunt would be a gross-out stunt. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the gross-out stunts. Were you testing them out here in this building, like bringing in tarantulas and figuring out how it was all going to work? Every, uh, this was 
at the offices where you worked. Oh, we, right. We okay. produced out of that office at the time. And we did. We tested everything. So the bugs and the rats and the snakes and the eating the cow testicles or whatever it was, everything was tested and vetted for safety, even though it was extremely gross. I knew you would watch all of that. You had to. You had to know. Yes, but I... With, I, fortunately, I just observed the testing. I did not have to. Did you get really grossed out? I did. There were some things that I literally said, I can't give notes on this because I feel like I'm going to throw up every time I watch it. Like what? Well, it was the eating stuff in yeah. particular. I, I wouldn't want to be in a coffin full of earthworms or maggots right. or whatever they were. I can imagine that more than eating raw cow testicles or brains or that kind of stuff. I can't even remember. You know, crickets, I think. we did. All of that stuff really grossed me out. And um, so, yes, we tested all of that. Anyway, we... Uh, Endemol liked the idea. NBC liked it. We put it into production right away. That was really fun because I had never done such giant stunts with yes. cranes and cars and underwater, and we had really cool locations. And during that period, Endemol, the production company, really wanted to have a base of operations in the States. And they said, okay, we're going to buy you. And they had a, a history of buying production companies around the world, and they hadn't had any in the United States. And they were working with us, so they'll buy us and we would become Endemol and then they wouldn't have to, they, anything we were making, they would actually be making themselves, blah, blah, blah. So we went through the deal process and the deal turned out to be embarrassingly bad. And we said, no, thank you. How do you know it's bad? Do you just know because you well, were able to compare in the industry? Like, well, I, something like that, I wouldn't know. I didn't know at the time, but I think they offered us 1.6 million to buy the company. And even back then, that felt like way not enough. Yeah, money. that doesn't seem like enough at all. So uh, we said no, and they said, all right, well, we, we need to start our own company. And they proceeded to build Endemol USA out of our offices. They said, can we house there? Can you help us set up our banking, our accounting? And we did. And, and they eventually, once that was fully established, they pulled away and they took the show with them. So in the course of 18, 20 months, I built Big Brother, created and built Fear Factor, not all by myself. Right, but you but, were in the mix. And then lost them. Oh. And we had done that at the expense of doing any other development for Evolution because they were such huge endeavors, of massive course. endeavors. And we almost went out of business. And for... 10 or 11 months, it was really scary because we hadn't developed any new shows for us. Yeah, that, that, that was all hands on deck for those shows. So we looked and said, we, our history is in cable. That's where our roots are. Let's turn back to cable and figure out how to take over cable. And not that we have taken over cable. God knows that's not true. But since then, we've produced about 40 different cable television series, many of which have run a long time, and some of them have even become notable, like The Real Housewives, or uh, Botched, right. or Yo Mama, or yeah. Ten Years Younger. I mean, so they, there were some that actually 
people have heard really, of. really caught on and yeah. captured the imagination. How low did you get personally during that thing? Was it just like I'm? Are you pretty resilient? I'm resilient, and I am hardwired to be a cockeyed optimist. I am. And I'm so envious of that. I've been reading a lot about like the difference between people's natural optimism and pessimism, and how that affects their lives and stuff. I just read a book about that subject, and that's so interesting. Well, it, and it has served me well many yeah. times, but it also sometimes creates a sense of false expectations about how the world is and should be treating you. But I can't help it. That is how I am hardwired, and I thought, fuck this. I'm going to pick myself up, brush myself, and keep going. I love that. Have I have no choice. This, this book that I'm reading, it sort of makes the premise that people that are more pessimistic see the world pretty much the way it is. They're not wrong, but people that are optimistic do better in everything. Like, relationships, business, school, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, it's a way, it's a good way to be. So, I, well, I admire I, it. I hope that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I've had I many, think we're, I've had many think you're living proof of low it. times. How do, you, how do you roll with them? How do you, something falls through, big disappointment. Boom. Happens all the time. Yeah. How do you Things process fall through them? and then we lose shows or... or Shows that should have been huge hits get programmed against the World Series for the first night, and then the network says, "Oh, nobody watched it. We're not doing it." I mean, that kind of stuff happens. Oh. Um, I I feel like I'm a realist. Yeah, but I believe in myself. I believe that people are genuinely good. Not everybody, but most people. And I figure. I don't fucking have a choice. That's something I say to myself all the time. I don't really have a choice. I just have to keep marching forward, climbing the hill, and trying to do it. I love it. Well, I want to... I've worked at a number of different companies around town. I loved working with Evolution. Thank I thought you. it was humane. <laughs> People were good at what they did. They had fun. But there was a there was a respect and a, it really was a familial feel. And, and I felt like there was a... Morality at work in the shows, like you were fair to the people in it, and I just it just was a good vibe all the way around, and it must come from the top. Well, thank you. I hope that it does. I have always believed, and and Alex Baskin, my business partner, makes fun of me because I bring this up, and rightly so, but nonetheless, I believe in the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and I've always run the company that way. And I believe if you take good care of the crew, they'll take good care of you. I learned a long time ago that I, the only way I'm going to build this company is if I hire good people because I can't do everything by myself like right. we used to in the early, early days when I would shoot, edit, wardrobe, whatever. I used to do it all. Um, so I learned early on that you have to, it's, it's a group effort. It's a community. And I'm also happy that I do not have to be the smartest guy in the room. In fact, I like to try to find people who are smarter than me. They make my job easier. They make me look better. They make the company run better. I'm quite happy to be surrounded by people who are better than me. And that, so that's my philosophy in, in running the company. And, and it's interesting because you think of television producers. You think you go into the networks, you have to be kind of you know, a, a shark and, like, manipulative and all of that. It, it, you think of the business as being well, tough that way. And so how is. do you fit into it? I think that 
I've succeeded in spite of the fact that I am not an aggressive asshole. Right. That's the thing. That's the full quote for this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I... I, I had an experience, right, an opportunity to work with Norman Lear on right. an industrial project. I just saw him speak at a panel thing. He's an, an inspiration. He sure. is an inspiration and, uh, a, you know, a great businessman, a great creator, and TV owes a lot to him. And as he got to know me, he said something to me that really stuck with me. He said, don't ever try to be who you're not. He said, you couldn't even pull off being an asshole if you tried. So just be you and keep at it. And that really stuck with me. Yeah, that moves me. Uh, I often get frustrated that a lot of my competitors who cheat, lie, and steal, who are aggressive assholes, who are fantastic self-promoters and great salesmen, make a lot more money than I do have a lot more power and and bigger shows and I think fuck why do these bad people get rewarded this way that is kind of the way the world mostly works right but that's not who I am and I harking back to what I said earlier I kind of don't have a choice I just have to be who I am and go forward but I do believe in myself I am confident about my abilities I know that I am a a good, decent person who's coming at it from a good place, and I believe that in the end that will win out. I don't know if I'll ever be, I won't be for sure, I will not be as powerful or as rich as many of my competitors, but I've been running Evolution independently for almost 30 years, and we're doing pretty well, yeah. and I think that for the most part, people have enjoyed working here and that's important to me too yeah there's you have a good reputation even in my just little casual conversations like that's what i hear echoed all the time you did boy meets boy on um, bravo with james i should it should have been called all about andra for me it was all about andra it was the dating show on bravo where some of the guys were straight james was a bachelor andra was his best friend and she was really good television she was great tv what, what do you remember about that? What was fun about it? What was hard about it? I loved that experience. I, it definitely was on a, a probably eight to ten years ahead of its time. Yeah. Uh, they're doing a... a Finding Prince Charming. Are you watching it? No, not, it's I'm watching taped. it. I'm, I mean, it's DVR. It's DVR. Yeah. I met the guy at yeah. a party. I liked him. I thought he was nice. My favorite thing, though, I was with my friend Glenn. I told this story on the podcast already, but we're all standing in a clump at this cocktail party, and we're meeting the bachelor guy, and my friend Glenn goes, can I steal you away for a second? Because you know that's what they say at every one of those, <laughs> any one of those bachelor parties. And oh, he was like, not funny. really. I just wanted, I've always wanted to say oh, that. that is so yeah, funny. I thought the guy was nice. He was cool. Um, I will tune I'm in. I'm watching it. I'm into I, it. I want to see. And I, I can buy into those shows Yes, that's easily. It's the same. We should have our bachelor. Why not? Why not? That's what I say. So what I remember about Boy Meets Boy, what was fun about that was it really was fun to do a show that was very much ahead of its time. This was a lot long before the heavy-duty gay rights movement, uh, the modern part of the movement, had really taken hold. Yeah. This was before marriage equality was even really even being discussed. And it was just fun to do a show that was 
really edgy, and I loved the twist of the show. I'm so proud of it, even though a lot of people in the gay community to this day derided and think it was horrible. I completely disagree. I think it was innovative, and it really held a mirror to society. And in that show, the straight guys were the ones in the closet. And all the straight guys who participated in the show, every single one of them, told us at the end of production what a phenomenal experience it was for them because they they were brave to do it, to pretend they were gay in front of the national audience. But they were all confident enough in who they were that they would do it, but they it was such a learning experience for them to understand what it's like to be the one in the closet. Unfortunately, James, yes. the leading guy, frankly, did not have a sense of humor and could not see after the twist was revealed, felt so betrayed that he took the show, you know, a left turn and we made it work in the end. But I really had hoped that he would be more of a good sport and have a sense of humor about it because it was meant in a good spirit. It wasn't meant to be mean. He thought it was mean. But that's what it, that's how it turned out, yeah. and uh, I uh, part of what was fun for me about that show is that there was a lot of publicity, both positive and negative. Yeah, and I had a chance to do a lot of TV interviews and be interviewed for the major news magazines. Uh, Newsweek did a big spread, a centerfold spread on the show, and that was fun for me to be the center of the storm and be the spokesman for something that we were very proud of, even though we understood it was very controversial. Right. Because I think people are wanting to find love. You know, when you watch those shows, you kind of want it, even if it's bullshit, you want to feel that way. And so I felt like, well, when a bunch of the guys were ruled out for whatever. Did you, were you one of the people who thought that the show was bad or that? I don't, I I don't remember being outraged by it. (laughs) I I just remember, I, I got to meet Wes, the guy that ended up with James. Yeah. For 15 minutes. Or whatever. But he's really nice, and I became friendly with him for a while. He is a really And nice I remember guy. Andra was really um, compelling and crazy. Um, but I don't remember... Yeah, I don't remember being outraged or offended by it. I I think it was kind of like... I think there was this, this feeling of like, oh, we can't just have a regular show. Like, we can't have... Maybe there's that that we're, yeah. I'm putting on myself. Does that make sense? But it was interesting to hear what the straight guys... There is in their... their I don't uh, think thing. in those days... A regular show would have been sold. It needed a twist for right. it to... They they needed that to make it salacious and juicy enough so people would potentially tune in. Yeah, I get it. Now, I listened to a podcast interview you did with another one, and you talked about a show, a show called The Puke Chronicles that was a pitch or something. Yes. I want to see that show. <laughs> I want it to happen. 13 episodes. I'll order it. I... And... Again, I'm bringing up my business partner, Alex, who's mortified and embarrassed every time I bring that up because he agrees it's a horrible idea. I still think it's a funny idea. It's people telling stories about when they threw up. Yes, with recreations. Of course. Yes, of course. Because, I'm sure you have one too, everybody has one one story in their life. It's a horrible moment, a terrible moment where they threw up and it was embarrassing or awful or hilarious for one reason or another and I thought it would make for a funny show. We pitched it to Mike Darnell, the reality guru from Fox who is now 
not there anymore. He's the one that always takes other shows and does a quick ripoff, right? Yes, and, and he... Gosh, I should be able to recount all his successes, and there were many, but he was the guy who wanted to buy the show where they would crash a plane in the desert to see what happened, or you know, the, the outlandish right. crazy stunts. And we went in and pitched that show, and they passed, of course, and then he... Uh, did an interview in the New York Times of some big paper and they said what was the worst pitch you ever heard and he said the worst pitch I ever heard was a show about the puke chronicles blah 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 and he goes on to talk about it that's a badge of honor in my book I thought it was a badge yes. of honor and several years later many many pitches later I kept pitching him we never sold to him he out of the blue at one pitch meeting he said I finally heard a pitch worse than yours. Oh, what was it? It was from Bruce Nash, uh, also a prolific reality producer who is, I think he's retired now. Uh, it was called Monkey on Your Back. <laughs> and it was two contestants who had to travel from New York to Los Angeles with a monkey on their back. A real monkey on their back. I, I don't know any more than that. I think it's kind of, int I'm intrigued. Like, what would that be like? I don't know, maybe not. What, uh, is there a show that you're the most proud of? The most proud of? Yeah, or something that, that had more social relevance than you, than you saw coming or you got letters about or, you know, I, I, I felt that way a bit about Botched by Nature. I, I felt like, like it was really um, doing good for, for people that, that would never have that kind of opportunity otherwise. There are a couple of shows. I definitely think that Botched and Botched by Nature are, are up there in terms of proud, even though some people think it's salacious and schlocky. Right, when you hear the title. I mean, yeah, of course. But if you really watch it and you get into the stories of the people who are the participants in the show and that the doctors genuinely care and want to do a good job. They're so into it. They're so I'm into so impressed it. with those doctors. That I'm very proud of that show. I, I'm always very, very proud of Bug Juice because not only was it the show that made us a real company and put us on the map, but I would hold that up as some of the most authentic, compelling television, certainly that we've ever done, but I think that's out there because it was just so real, but completely entertaining. I'm, I'm proud of... Uh, the social commentary that is generated by our exploration of modern day wealth and culture on the housewives and even on Vanderpump Rules. I mean, the New York Times has written Sunday magazine articles about the impact of Vanderpump Rules on the culture and what it says about the culture and how it is impacting the culture. And that makes me very proud because I think the shows are relevant. What was their point? What were, what were some of the things they said or one of the things they said? One of the things they said was that watching Vanderpump Rules was like a slow session of masturbation that it just feels so good and you just prolong it, which I, right. I loved that about it. They're that, edging. They're edging. They're edging. They're Vanderpump Rules is about like edging on a Sunday afternoon. Indeed. <laughs> I, I think that they felt that it was it, because at one at one on one hand, it's very real, very specific, and very relatable about 
personal relationships and group relationships and and how honest those were and thank god we have a cast that really have been friends forever and give it up completely in front of the cameras and yet there's a vapidness uh, a ridiculousness about their lives that is very much representative of our pop media obsessed culture our twitter obsessed culture and i think it it says this is this is real and it's good and it's bad at the same time right. like you could see you know martians or somebody looking at our culture or people 50 years from now looking at our television and being able to say certain things about what we valued and what was what was uh, important and and what wasn't and, and what it reflected um what keeps you sane in the crazy business what keeps me sane uh well, I give a lot of credit to my business partner, Alex Baskin, who uh, never is shy to keep me in line and, and uh, tell me the truth, but also he's a great sounding board. And to be able to have a business partner and a friend who you can have the tough conversations with, really explore the the questions and challenges that we face every day in the business and parse them out from every angle and trust that person completely helps to keep me sane. Yeah. The other thing that helps to keep me sane is I work out a lot and I'm an avid cyclist and I need to blow a lot of steam and, and get that blood circulating. And I, let my brain sort of unwind down to zero while I'm writing. Do you? Because it's funny because I like to spin. I take spinning classes. And if I'm stressed about something, it gets worse when I'm spinning as opposed to yoga, which does like that. But for you, cycling, well, I I think about it, but I think about it from a lot of angles and then eventually it kind of peters out and I go to the Zen place. That's good. And that helps. And plus you're outdoors. Where do you like to cycle? Do you have a favorite place? I... Well, I like to cycle in nature, but living in Los Angeles, and there's plenty of nature, but I have to make it convenient and efficient. Of course. There's a bike path that runs along the Orange Busway that goes the entire length of the San Fernando Valley. Yeah. And I live right near there. So I get on the path and I ride from my house in Valley Village uh, out to... Encino, sometimes all the way out to Topanga and back, and it's a good ride. There you go. Yeah. What's your dream project? Is there something that you've always wanted to do that you haven't done? Or, you know, make a documentary that's totally separately? Uh, Well, one of the dream projects that I've always wanted to do that I don't think we're going to get to do because we got scooped. I've always wanted to do a scripted show about the behind the scenes of the making of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Right. And I think that if I knew how to write and I could write that script it, because the behind the scenes story is even more fun than what happens on. Well, it's every phone call that you get. Well, it's the phone call, but it's all the interaction with the network and the cast and manipulation and the challenges of production and trying to make this very high end show. In the first couple of seasons when we had Camille Grammer, 
get a divorce from Kelsey Grammer on the show. She didn't know it was happening. We didn't know it was happening. It all unfolded before our eyes was an amazing experience. And the shenanigans that went on behind the scenes because of that, from Camille, from Camille her lawyers, from Kelsey, all of that was fascinating. We had a, a suicide that was attached to the second season of the show, which was also fascinating, a horrible experience, of course, but how it happened, how it was not part of the show, but became part of the show. It wasn't because of the show, but people thought it was because of the show and how we had to save the show from going under because of that and how we worked with the network. How did you do it? Oh, well, that's, that's a whole podcast. That's a whole that's story. All. But the bottom line was about that was the suicide really had nothing to do with the show. We knew that, but the, the public didn't. And of the course, public they'll assumed connect. Yeah. that it was part of it. But unfortunately, this gentleman had very, very substantial business problems. And he, and then the next day, his business partner committed suicide. His, the story of his business had never been part of our show. What was the name of the guy? The... Um, Russell Armstrong. Right. Yeah. Uh, and as the police were investigating and really determined that, I don't think being on the show helped his psyche, but it wasn't because of that. And he had been on the show for two years and the relationship troubles had always been part of their story. That wasn't really the issue. It was when he, when he died when he killed himself, he left a briefcase next to his body with all the unpaid bills and the lawsuits and the embezzlement suits and everything that was pending against him. And the fact that his business partner, who we didn't even know existed and was never part of the show, committed suicide the next day, indicated to everybody that that's what it was about. And when the network let us start answering the questions, at first, everybody was on a sort of like a gag order because nobody knew exactly what had happened, what to do, and they didn't want us to say something that would inadvertently be used against us or the show or the network down the line. When the truth became clear and we started, and the network allowed us to speak about what we think really had happened and that we weren't associated with it. and. And we even uh, asked the network to let us create a special opening for the season. The suicide happened after we were done shooting, but before the show had started airing. And, but the whole country knew about it. And we thought if we don't address it right off the top, it's gonna be weird and people are gonna have, feel gross about it. So we brought the cast together and we shot a sequence where they talked about it and their hurt, their anger, their pain, their what this meant. And we put it right at the head of the show. And the viewers, almost without question, were very supportive and thankful that we addressed it and that we explained what had happened and we let the cast feel their emotions. And once we dealt with it, then we could go back six months, seven months, and then tell the story. Right. And that really helped by, by not, the, the, the viewers were happy that we didn't try to cover it up, that we just dealt with it head on. Right. 
That was probably the best thing to do. But you said you got scooped. You mean by un- Unreal? Oh, yes. By Unreal. I'm a fan of Unreal. Especially the first season, more than the second. Do you watch it? It's, I, I like I, it. I want to. I want to watch it. It's just on the many <clears throat> thousands of things on my I know. There's too many shows. There's too many shows. All right. You pick some questions from the observation deck. We'll okay. go through these. What's the worst thing that's ever gone wrong for you on stage? <laughs> so, of course, in high school, I wanted to be a performer. Thank God I let go of that. But I was cast in a musical review that was an all-city kind of thing, and it involved tap dancing. There you go. And the number that was on stage before the big tap dance number involved dry ice. And oh, God. So I, uh, the lights go down, the number's over, and I go out to take my position on the stage, and I see there's a puddle of the melted whatever the chemical is that right. is dry ice right where I'm supposed to be standing. And I think to myself, okay, don't slip, don't step in the water, don't slip. So the, you know, the lights come on and the number happens and I'm doing my silly tap dance. Oh my God. And of course, I slip and fall down on my ass. <laughs> and, you know, I get up and but isn't it, try to is, get isn't it dangerous to touch it? No. He doesn't burn you or anything. But you recovered, right? Well, I recovered. But of course, everybody, all my friends, my family, they're all in the audience for this one-time-only big musical review. And they're like, all they could talk about was what a klutz I was when I fell down to dancing. You know what? You gave it your heart. You put your heart into it. (laughs) Where's the coolest place you've gotten to go for work? I think the coolest place I've gotten to go for work was we did an industrial job for Crystal Cruises where we had to shoot a bunch of videos on board their cruise ships. They're nice ships. And they're one of the most exclusive, luxurious right. cruise ships. So, And we all had our own private cabins on the, the big deck with the balconies. And so it was a great experience. And we sailed all over the world. But... Uh, the South China Sea was amazing, God. but the inside passage of Alaska yeah. was breathtaking, phenomenal. I'll never forget it, and to think that I, I got to do it. How long were you on the ship? We did several jobs, and I think over the course of a year, I was on the ship for probably about six weeks. Not all at one time, right. but a bunch of different I used cruises. to be a cruise ship dancer, did so you I really? know that whole world. Oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah, I know the tap dancing, fall down world, <laughs> and I know the cruise world. Um, what's the most trouble you ever got in in school? I am such a goody-goody, two-shoes, nerd, queer, loser type of person that the biggest trouble I ever got in was because I ditched geometry class, but because I was such a good kid and all school president and all that thing, when I went out with my friend to the bicycle racks to get on our bike in the middle of school... To ditch class, we were going to be bad. Right. The, pri- the principal and the head of security and the vice principal were in the, in the bicycle rack having a cigarette. And they just assumed that because we were the, the leaders and the good kids that clearly we had a reason and an right. excuse. And they like, hey, go, you know, whatever. And I thought, oh, we got away with it. I can't believe it. We got away with it. And I got home that afternoon. And my mom was waiting for me at the front door, which was unusual. 
and she had sweat stains under her arms, which I had never seen before. And I thought, uh oh, something's wrong. And the teacher whose class we ditched wanted to make an example of us and of course turned us in and they called my mom and and I got grounded and worse than that I got grounded off the telephone. This was, you know, right in the seventies, so a long time ago. Uh, which was a huge punishment for a month or six weeks or something like that. But so I guess it's not that much trouble, but it's but still a it's big memorable. thing in my head. So you think the sweat stains because she was angry and got worked up? Well, I think that she, you know, her perfect little boy who never did anything wrong and never got in trouble, and she got this call from the school that her son had done this thing, and I think it, she got worked it up. Rocked her world. It rocked her world. Um, tell us about the first time you saw a dirty magazine. <laughs> so... This might be too much. I don't know who your audience it's, is. Uh, no, it's all good. But I was over at my cousin's house, and his dad had a subscription to Playboy. Right. And I, of course, was fascinated, but as the soon-to-be young homosexual, I was much more interested in the one picture in there of a guy with his pants down who is about to do something with one of these ladies. Right. And I was fascinated by seeing a penis because I hadn't up to that point. Right. Well, sometimes in those magazines, there's nothing in there, but then there's that one shot in the back, like you're talking about, with, yeah. the, for the, with the women. And ones. I remember that moment, and I, yeah. I probably jerked off to that moment many, many times. That one little picture. <laughs> there, for me, there were some underwear ads that were like that, and yeah, I remember... Um, why do you love what you do? I love making television for a lot of reasons. I, I don't think I could pick just one. I, I genuinely love the group effort of it all. It is so much fun to be working with a group of people who are creative and passionate and... How we challenge each other, how we fight with each other, we make each other better, hopefully, most of the time. And to have the opportunity to take an idea that is just an idea and then go through the process of turning that idea into a television show, which usually, as you know, takes several years. And then to sit on your couch and watch it on television. Like, I watch the shows in the cut process, in the edit bay, on the computer. We give notes. I look at the raw footage, blah, blah, blah. There's nothing like the thrill of watching it on TV with the commercials, with the promos, on your television and think, oh, my God, I made that. That that juices me quite a bit. And that never gets old. That's always a thrill. It never gets old. I love that. Um were you and, obsessed with TV when you were a kid? Oh, I grew up in a TV household. Right. A, a family that loved TV, still loves TV. I, my family was a functional family. We, we still to this day get along and we would solve disputes with laughter and discussion. So we had a very happy upbringing. And so TV was an escape from reality. It was the way we bonded. It was this common link that we shared we would watch the shows together talk about them we'd love them together and uh i knew 
that I wanted to be in television. I think initially I wanted to be an actor, but I, I, early on I realized that's not my calling. My calling is behind the camera. Where did you grow up? Denver, Colorado. All right. That's a cool, cool, beautiful place. It is. Do you remember when the fall TV preview guide, TV guide would come out and it was like that thick? Absolutely. And it always had the decorative cover and you would just go and find all your shows? <clears throat> well, it's been so fun talking to you. My last question, why did you name it Evolution? I struggled with a lot of names. I wanted to come up with a name that I thought sounded cool, but that actually meant something. And I liked Evolution because to me it meant that as a company, we would always be growing and improving. Nice. I love it. Now, um, there's an Evolution Media website. People can learn all about your shows there. It's a very poor website, badly maintained. But other than that, cool. it's great. <laughs> yeah. It's... We, I always think we should we should make our website cool, but we get so caught up in making the shows. The last thing we do is yeah. have time to work on the, the That's website. That's all right. And do you do social media yourself? No. no. Well, I have an Instagram account. Okay. I do Instagram. There I, you go. I, I think in pictures more than words. Yeah. I, somebody, I, somebody had given up Facebook, but they did Instagram. And they said, I said, why do you like that better? And they said, it's hard to complain in a picture. Because, you know, so much of Facebook is people complaining. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, it's hard to complain in a picture. I like that. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's My been pleasure. really fun to talk to you. Really fun. Watch all the shows. And um, thanks. Bye. Thanks again to Doug Ross from Evolution Media. Watch his shows, which you probably already are doing and enjoying. All right. So this happened. It was my birthday on Thursday the 29th. Um, but I'm sort of doing fun things throughout the weekend. I didn't have a big blowout or any big event. Um, last night, my birthday, my friend Rebecca took me to see, um, Lauren Weedman from Looking, doing her sort of kooky cabaret character piece at Red Cat in Disney Hall, and it was really fun, um, and she, uh, plays this kind of country singer doing a variety show, but then some other characters come in. It's kind of off the wall, but she was so fun to watch and listen to. And my favorite part was when she sang the song Nobody by Sylvia. Does anybody remember this country song? Well, you're nobody called today. That one. I know it's going to be stuck in your head all day. Well, in high school, I was obsessed with that song because my friend Tommy uh, was obsessed with it. And he was obsessed with Sylvia, who sang it. And Tommy was gay, and I was gay, but neither of us were out. And when people would say that Tommy was gay, I would say, no, he's not because he loves Sylvia. Because he was, he, he was like, whenever we talk about whether a girl was pretty, um, he would say, well, she's all right, but she's no Sylvia. So Sylvia was his beard. And um, I hadn't heard that song in probably a million years. And damn it if Lauren Weedman didn't sing it. And it's such a good song. And she sang it in the context of... Um, she had this line, she goes, if I had a dime for every gay guy I had fallen in love with, I'd have 85 cents, which I think is the funniest line because it makes you wonder about the half, you know, the half gay. But um, she sang it like the person that she was singing nobody to was a gay guy. And he's like, and so she did like little gay voices, but the gay guy had a nobody. But of course, the nobody was a guy. It's about infidelity and cheating. And anyways... You had to be there. But it was a fun night. I'm a little out of it. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye!